Candyman, a podcast that is not about the horror series Candyman, not even remotely. It's actually about Sweet Tooth on Netflix, and we're going to do a big postcap show for you today. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And for this episode, we have a special guest. We're very excited to bring on the podcast the co-showrunner of Sweet Tooth himself, Jim Mickle. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, we're so excited. We're so excited to have you here. We have been loving the show. We're big fans of the comic yeah. book from way back, so I think our anticipation probably could have been higher, but this passed it. It, it went past it. Yeah. We love the show. We were very, we loved every oh, single part of it. Uh, but I kind of want to take it back to the beginning here, just to sort of lay the groundwork, because I know you've been working on getting this on TV for a very long time. Where did it start? Yes. Where did your <laughs> love of Sweet Tooth start? And where did the initial germ <laughs> of maybe this could be a TV show come about? I first read it when it first came out. So it was probably 09, 2010. Um, and I'm not traditionally a, a you know, a, a huge comic book guy, but I just loved that cover. I sort of go through phases and I, and I fall in love with mostly kind of independent comics. And um, I saw that cover and I fell in love with that. And um, I read those first couple issues and just kept thinking, you know, I had just done a movie called Stakeland, which is, you know, a similar theme, post-apocalyptic world and a you know, sort of a, a guy takes a, a innocent kid under his wing to sort of explore what's left of America. And I kept thinking, you know, is there a way to do a movie out of this? Is there something that you could do um, to just sort of do a twist on the kind of thing that we had just done? And, you know, I looked at it, kept working on it a little bit, um, shared it with my uh, co-writer, Nick Dimitri. I just felt like the world was a little bit too big. We didn't quite have the sort of the the budget to be able to pull something off like that and it kind of floated away a little bit and then i guess it was about 2016 i was talking with team downey about trying to find something to work together and they they kind of said uh you know have you ever heard of this comic book sweet tooth and i literally at that point still had it on my shelf next You're to me like, like yes yeah. absolutely oh, yeah, yeah. What? how dare you okay <laughs> <laughs> absolutely what are, you know and and at that point they had just started thinking about what a series that might look like with uh with warner brothers and i reread it which is kind of fascinating then reading it you know six years later because you know so much had changed about apocalyptic fiction and so many of the things that jeff was writing about was happening you know in real life and and it was a real it was an interesting experience going back and re-looking at that and so kind of just kicked it off from there i guess that was the end of 2016 was when we really dug into it in in all seriousness jeff has such a such a specific artistic style that it's not one at mm -hmm. least in my mind that you would look at and say immediately oh put this on tv this is easily mm -hmm. translatable to <laughs> human beings yeah. because it's so exaggerated to get out the feel of the emotion of the character. We talked about this a little bit, but they're almost grotesque in a certain way at a, at a point, to the point where sometimes they become beautiful. Uh, Jeff Lemire does have that specific art style, and I feel like to take that that visual source material and bring it to, uh, to real life, um, that must have been a challenge. Uh, how did you sort of go about that? It was a challenge. I think the biggest thing was, well, one was shooting in New Zealand, which I think has already a sort of a baked in exaggerated look and feel to it. You know, like um, <laughs> when we were originally, <laughs> we were originally, you know, looking for what do you do this kind of a story? And 
um, we scouted there and it was just like, this just looks like a sort of a fairy tale. Everything's a bit bigger, a bit more curved version of America. This feels like the place to do it. So that was a big part of it. But really, you know, getting together some of the best designers, cinematographers, costume designers, um, just special effects people, just craftsmen and craftswomen to, to pull this off was, was the key. And I think I think the key was everybody really loved it for what it was and bought into it. And I think felt like just because it's a comic book doesn't mean, you know, we're going to go down the sort of the traditional route with this stuff. As you guys said, what, what's so nice about Jeff's stuff is like, he's writing it and he's drawing it. And, and there's a personal thing to that. And, and that would, it would have been a shame, I think, if we had gone away and sort of like just turned it into a sort of a big shiny kind of committee kind of a, a, a design aspect. And so um, I think a big part of making a lot of that stuff work was doing as much as we could practically and doing stuff in camera. And early on, you know, we looked at a lot of 80s stuff, you know, a lot of Jim Henson, a lot of practical kind of puppetry work. And the thing about that is even looking back at it, it's like, even when you know that it's fake, like it still has a charm and a sort of a tangible thing that a lot of CG and green screen does not. I think we tried to embrace that as much as possible. And as soon as we did and it started to work, it sort of became addictive and it really became like, how do we do all of this? How do we build as much as we can instead of just doing green screen? You know, how do we do as much, even if we had to do green screen, how do we make sure that 90% of this is real and photographed and in camera? And even if it has a slightly sort of heightened theatrical thing, that's okay. You know, there's still a sort of a physical charm to it. And I think, I'd, I'd like to think that that helped sort of translate Jeff's style. I, I think so. I agree with you. Um, and the fact that it, you lean into the fairy tale aspect of it, and I don't know if it's the New Zealand light or it feels like every character yeah. has a little glow to them. Like, did you shoot every yeah. scene at Golden Hour? Like, what was <laughs> yeah. happening? Here? Yeah. Well, a couple things. Um, yes, we were very smart about trying to do that. The, the reality is, New Zealand has a very, can get a very harsh sun and there's times where um, very rarely, but there are times in dailies where it's sort of cringe where you just get this like, it's like nuclear. It just like lights up the grass around you. So we actually had to avoid that a lot of times. We were able to do a lot on a stage, which is the first time that I was able to really do a lot of stage work, which was really enjoyable because, you know, we were able, like the woods, for example, we build a lot of the woods on a stage and that just gives you a level of control that is really great. Aaron Morton, who was a, our cinematographer on the first episode, I remember the first time he kind of showed me a trick that he had done on Orphan Black, um, which he shot, I think all of, where he just worked in this little like side edged light that sort of faked a magic hour glow. But there was just something about the color and the way that it sort of hit that even though it was sort of not real, it was over stylized, it was beautiful. And we incorporated that a ton on the pilot. And then um, Dave Garbutt went on to shoot the rest of the show, along with John Cavill. They incorporated that as much as possible. And that really became like a big piece of the lighting of the show. That was definitely a big aspect of it. We also used LED walls, like similar to what The Mandalorian does. We did a sort of a scaled down version of that. It was much more of like a garage band version of that um, that we pulled off. But that also helped to sort of you know, you could you could choose to shoot something at a sort of fading daylight kind of a look. Like you could you could pull all that stuff out, and that was so much fun to experiment with. But speaking of the the beautiful shots, I was really impressed with a lot of the shots, and especially at the kind of like start of the episodes, really powerful stuff that uh, that really kind of made me uh, 
feel like some of the beauty from the comic kind of come to life, which is really mm -hmm. impressive. Was mm -hmm. there, and also I just want to say a side note, like the casting, oh, just really yeah, knocked yeah. it out of the park. Um, yeah. Were there moments that were like, as the person who read the comic book first, or what would you say, like a thing that like watching it or, or after it was kind of out that you were like really proud of that you were like, oh, I love this shot or I love this storyline or what we were able to do here? Um, all of it, really. I mean, that's a kind of a cheap answer, but, but really yeah. all of it. I mean, the, at what you're talking about, I think is true. There's, there's aspects of the beginning of episode one and two that, you know, we shot the pilot before COVID, you know, but when we were doing the pandemic storyline, it was like, how do we find a new, like, we've all seen this. We've seen the World War Z version. We've seen the 28 Days Later version. We've seen so many versions of this. How do we how do we do it in a sort of a new way? That stuff I'm really proud of, this, the opening of the, of the pilot, which we wound up actually making shorter afterwards because the crazy thing was, you know, it was originally about six or seven minutes long originally, but all of a sudden you go through a pandemic together as a world. And a lot of that stuff is like, oh, we actually don't need that scene. Like there's so many things now that are shorthanded, you know, and everyone sort of understands the actual progression where the first time around it was like, you really have to show the world, you know, that, that this could happen. So that was kind of interesting. I really love the Singh and Ronnie, Dr. Singh and Ronnie storyline, um, which is obviously oh, yeah. not a piece of the comic book, but I really yeah. love that character and getting to sort of tell an origin story of that character and find our own kind of weird tone about it, but also something that linked to the comic was really rewarding. Could you talk about a little bit about casting Gus? because that's obviously mm -hmm. a key part of mm -hmm. the show is getting the right person in that role. Yeah, so first off, hats off to Carmen Cuba, who's our casting director, who also cast Stranger Things and, and had you know a lot of experience, obviously, with casting young actors and, and especially young actors who could sort of go on to lead a series. The crazy thing was that Christian was like one of the first kids that we saw like I want to say wow. he was like I want to say he was wow. like number five out of hundreds wow. you know it was so crazy because like I think I was really anxious about it because you just think like this is going to be like a months-long journey and it's going to be so many kids and it's going to be so many bad ones before you stumble on you know there's going to be some kid that's in a small town somewhere that doesn't even know what acting is and he's going to you know it's going to be one of those discoveries and Carmen sent like the first sort of batch and I think Christian was like literally like like the fifth or sixth kid and and you watched him and you're like oh my god that kid not only is he great like I want to be him he's like I remember he had, jean, <laughs> he had like a jean jacket on and he kind of had like a Brad Pitt kind of a thing and he's nine <laughs> and part of it was like the scene but it was also just like talking to him and you're just like how is he nine and then you also realize like I think at that point he already had like 23 credits to his name. 23. He mentioned, he mentioned that at some point. You're just like, wait, what? In your mind, you're like, well, it's not going to be the first kid that we like. Like that's never the way that it goes. But if he sets the bar for how good all these actors are going to be, we're going to, you know, be in such luck. And then probably weeks went by of just continuing to look, continuing to look, and you just keep going, like, I think it was Christian. Like I think it was the first kid we saw. And it was. He was just amazing. His mom, Lisa, is amazing. They're great partners. They are, you know, not only is he good on screen, but like he spends probably a good hour every morning in makeup and getting the prosthetics on. The prosthetics and the puppetry is awesome, but it's also, it would annoy the crap out of me. You know, it's like it's the, the ears yeah. are 
glued onto the side. There is a little sound when they turn, and if they're on your head, you can definitely hear them. And so he's doing these emotional scenes, and they're you know in his ears. Oh, but he that's so funny. It out. He never gets that's you know impressive. he never gets impatient with it. He's just it's amazing. He's really amazing. I gotta ask uh, about another very important cast member, though, who is crucial to mm-hmm. the show, who we have a little bit of a disagreement about on the podcast. But Bobby, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> yeah, I love Bobby. Bobby, legitimately, when he appeared on the screen, made me gasp out loud. I was so stunned and excited. I think he's, Pete's just scared of Bobby. Yes, he's I think terrified Pete's, of Bobby. Yes, he had a bad experience with Otter's Jug Band Christmas, and he's never got it. <laughs> yeah, Emmett uh, Otter. But Bobby is like the most extreme version of what you're doing. The hybrid children. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, you've got Gus and Pigtail on one end, I think, and then you've got those gradations mm-hmm. in between. But mm-hmm. why why create Bobby the way you did? What went into the thought process there to make him mm-hmm. this sort of animatronic, moving, walking puppet type thing right we did the pilot and then i wrote a backup script with my partner nick Dimitri, and we we spent about a month kind of doing like an early break this is back when the show was at hulu looking at the pilot we said such I, I just had such a great time with that prosthetic puppetry approach to gus and we kind of kept going like how do we keep advancing that and it was actually nick's idea he said you know when it came to Bobby, it was like, how do you pull this off? Like, I don't want to see a kid just covered head to toe and fur and, you know, like, it's just going to be weird. It's going to be creepy. I think we actually went down the road of doing some designs and it just looked horrifying. It was like, it was like, it was like a werewolf version of like Dennis the Menace or something. <laughs> um, and it was like, we could not do this. Like the whole point is this character is, you know, is is a bit of a runt of the litter so, somewhat. And so it was actually Nick that was like, do it full ET, like go full gizmo, you know? And it was kind of like, oh, wow, we can't really do that. We're making a TV show. But we did, you know, we pitched it to Fractured and they went to work and designed this thing. And it was incredibly hard to shoot and boxed you in, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, looking back at stuff like Gremlins, it's like, it's so charming the way that, you know, they always have to sort of put them like on a table or, you know, like popping out of something. There's a real charm to that and the way that you sort of have to block scenes to make that work. I think it drove a lot of people on set nuts. I think the other directors kind of looked like, thanks, man, you just killed my day so I had to put this thing <laughs> yeah. in a scene. Uh, you mentioned in Gremlins, um, in watching the series, like I keep, uh, I feel like a lot of people have um, brought up Amblin and different sort of mm-hmm. uh, things from that era. Like Goonies mm-hmm. really stuck out to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I wanted to ask, like, what sort of movies were you going back to when you were like, oh, I mm-hmm. want to figure out how this looks or feels or or moves through the series? The first one was Okja, Bong Joon Ho's Okja. Oh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, because I, uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers at the time i'd actually been lucky enough to have dinner with him years ago when he premiered snowpiercer and when i heard that he was doing that we went to like a really early screening of it and it was when we were trying to crack sweet tooth and i had no idea what to expect but there was just something about the way that he had sort of taken a lot of that sort of amblin stuff and filtered it through his kind of crazy lens and made it kind of personal in a way but there was also just something about that that was like you never once question that super pig you know you're like that is just that's her pig you know and it was like that's what you need to do with Gus you know is 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 take that and and I think a lot about that character too of just having somebody who is you know doesn't isn't old enough to know better and just feels the way that they do and very confidently and the sort of a childlike innocence was so charming so that was the first thing and also the love of nature I think but also the fact that it was 
doing, you know, taking on some dark themes about factory farming and that sort of a thing that does not belong in kids movie, but doing it in a way that isn't too over their heads. So anyway, so that was, that was kind of first. And then it was a lot of dark crystal and never ending story. But then really when it came time to putting it together, I think the pilot kind of happened in its own way. I have to confess, it was a lot of trying to kind of figure it out as we went along. When we got into doing the series and all of a sudden you start bringing other directors along and you're sort of talking about like, how are we going to pull this off? Toa Fraser, our, our producing director, we just ended up having lots and lots and lots of conversations about Spielberg specifically in that sort of era. There, mostly because, and I have to give Toa a ton of credit because he's he's so great at, at, at sort of being able to drill the stuff down, but there's a real classicism to that filmmaking. And it's the kind of thing you don't often see in television because I think television is moving so quickly, you're often just like, just get the shots that you need, you know, we'll make it all work later. And there's a real discipline to that kind of storytelling of, of trying to do things in moving master shots and playing things in much wider lenses. It's also the biggest thing that I've gotten to work on. And so like all of a sudden, like I'm used to sort of having to shoot on much longer lenses and sort of zoom in because you just don't have the budget to quite fill the frame yeah. and things look a little bit more exciting. And all of a sudden it's like, you're able to go wide angle and you're able to look at stuff the way that a kid sees stuff. And that really became the way that we kind of stitch stuff together. But also when you look back at Goonies and ET and that kind of stuff, it's like those things were much darker than I think a lot of kids entertainment is today. A hundred percent. And that's what I like. The world of Goonies is dystopian. These kids are in an yeah. existential crisis in the same <laughs> way that uh, I feel like uh, we have in, in Sweet Tooth. So like it really hit for me in that comparison. I do want to talk about the season as a whole and the season finale in particular and leave some time for that. Uh, mm -hmm. The one, one of the things that we've talked about a lot here on the podcast that almost probably too strong to say it goes against conventional wisdom with streaming shows, but there feels like there was a time where streaming shows were kind of being like, okay, we're setting everything up in the first season and get ready for season mm -hmm. two and season three. But this one, not that everything is left on the table, but really by the finale, it feels like you've answered a lot of questions. You've tied up a lot of loose ends. And in particular, when you get to the end there, you find out that all these characters are tied together in a very big way from Singh being in the elevator with Jeopard to yeah. mm -hmm. Pigtail and Bear being uh, adoptive sisters. So mm -hmm. what was important there just in terms of the structure of the season, thinking about this as a one season thing versus a multi-season plan? I always knew where it was going to end. You know, there was a definite, I think, point in the comic that felt like this, this is kind of where this needs to go. You know, I kind of played around early on with like, you know, did they get to the, to the preserve mid-season? You know, all these kind of things early on, but it just felt like that's where the end of the season is going to be. And I think we knew where every character, how they were going to link there. We definitely didn't know how it, they would come to all wind up at the same place at the same time. So there was a lot of work in the writer's room to, act, to connect those dots and get those things moving. You know, it's it's always exciting when you get, you know, I forget how many people we have, but it's always exciting when you get people together and everyone is just sort of almost trying to crack the same like mathematical problems to, to, to not problems, but challenges to sort of get all those things together and link them. It was not easy. You know, there were moments where, you know, we were, I think we were in quarantine in New Zealand in a quarantine hotel, you know, for the two weeks before we could land. And we were breaking that last episode. And I was in this little room 
taking all these things that we had talked about as a writer's room and trying to crack that last episode and bouncing that back to Beth Schwartz, who was in LA and to the other writers and feeling like there's just no way that we can do this. Like, this is just so damn hard. And, you know, you just chip away and chip away and chip away. And I remember some of those things like sing in the elevator, you know, is obviously not in the comic book. And I remember at some point sharing that idea with the producers and they were like, that just feels too coincidental. And you're like, yeah, you're right. But then you take it out and you go like, no, it actually oh, needs that, that. that lyrical yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and it's like, it doesn't really make sense. A lot of it doesn't always make sense. The plane in the field, like you start to ask all these questions of like, how long has it been there? All this stuff. And, you know, you know, you start to hit walls, but you're like, it goes back to the fairy tale thing. I think you sort of have to just lean into those elements. We talked a lot about the confidence of having the three divergent stories just existing separately and feeling like, mm -hmm. oh, they're going to come together. But the way that they didn't for so long, and then they yeah. did, but they sort of crossed and split yeah. in a way that, like, uh, I feel like I didn't see coming, even though uh, I read every issue of the comic. So I mm -hmm. feel like that really helped to get you those extra moments that, um, yeah, that's, like, true. that's not real. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. What can you talk about with the ending there? Obviously, there's a lot of cliffhangers. We have Amy with mm -hmm. Jeopard going to try to take the zoo back, take the preserve back from Abbott, uh, sing. Mm -hmm seems to have taken a very dark step down the road in terms of agreeing to actually dissect the animals if Gus is at least mm -hmm. surviving at this point. And then, of course, we have the birdie shows up cliffhanger. So mm -hmm. presumably we're going to follow all of those in a potential season two. Um, what, if anything, have you laid out at this point that you can talk about? That's a very good question. We have not gotten to put a lot of intense thought into that. And, and the reason why is... We literally just finished the show like a week ago. Oh, <laughs> um, I love hearing that. That's awesome. <laughs> Believe it or not, we were getting close to finishing it and then Netflix called and, and we were like, if we if all the cards come together, we'll just be able to hit July. <laughs> and, uh. Uh, and then a couple of months ago, Netflix called and was like, is there any way we can have it by June 4th? And it was like, uh. the only way is if we all are just like, destroying ourselves and sacrificing our personal lives uh in the entire post team and that was the way that we went so literally i i i binged it this weekend and it was actually hard at times because there was like shots that i was literally in color correction on like four days so stressful <laughs> and we were also you know we were sound mixing remotely so we were watching on our couch on our television and going through you know, all the stuff. And literally, I think the last one was maybe two weeks before. So we're really in like wind down season one mode. So definitely have had lots of conversations about what season two would like, it would look like if that happened. You know, I think a lot of people are pulling for it, but we'll have to wait for, see what the Netflix gods decide. It, it turns, the show has been number one on Netflix for a couple of days. I don't know how much you can talk about this, but there's so much curiosity about metrics in terms of how Netflix picks up a show or not. Have they, even if you can't talk about specifics, have they given you indications of, okay, here's kind of the place that the show needs to hit in order for us to move season two talks forward? They have not gotten to that kind of specifics in terms of like what, what their targets are. I don't know what that is. And I don't know that they know what, I'm sure that somebody knows what that is, but uh, you know, you definitely get the sense that there's like a giant computer that they're sort of feeding everything into yeah. that, that that tells them whether that's the case or where it's just our own sort of fairy tale idea of it. One light turns green or, or turns exactly. red and you're like, exactly. ding, ding. 
<laughs> I know that they like to look at data over time, which is is a big part of their how they sort of watch. Because a lot of it is, I, I have a feeling is not just about like numbers right off the bat, but it's about the sort of behavior and the ongoing behavior, meaning, you know, how many people finish it, how quickly do they finish it, you know, that kind of thing. It's still a bit of like technological word salad, I guess, but all to say that I think these, these early days definitely matter, but I think it's also about like staying power with a lot of these shows, which is interesting from a release standpoint, but just makes me hope it'll, it'll stay popular, stay number one for a while. I just wanted to say thank you for all the, the sacrifice you put in. Uh, you know, you said you, <laughs> you had to really, you know, go at a breakneck speed uh, to get this done, but something that is really uh, creeped to me out. And if you do get seven season two, you know, uh, please don't do this as much. The shaky pinky thing has stuck with me in a way that I've been having nightmares and staring at people's pinky. So uh, uh, please, please stop. Uh, please. <laughs> That's funny. That came from a sort of an early, early thing of like, you know, what's a new way to see, again, this is all pre-COVID, but like what's a new way to sort of see pandemic, you know, like you don't want to do just, I don't want to, you know, with this kind of story, I don't know that I want to be looking at sores and rashes and, you yeah, know, barfing blood. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All that kind of stuff. And is there just something that like, I was kind of remembering like Michael being in the abyss when he gets the bends. I think it's the abyss uh, when he gets, oh, maybe wow, it's yeah. aliens, when he gets the bends and just stuff like that. Like, is there some sort of a almost neurological thing that actually looks totally normal? And around that time I was getting one of those moments, you know, your, your eyelid just starts to sort of flutter, you know, it's almost like a yeah. little instinctual kind of a thing. And I think it started as that, that it was originally going to be an eye thing. And I think we even worked that into a couple moments in the pilot and then just realized it was really hard to have dramatic conversations when someone's <laughs> eye someone's is constantly up. fluttering. And so we just kind of fell back on the pinky thing and, and, and went with that. But it was kind of, it's funny in hindsight to think about how these things have these journeys to the screen. Uh, I got to say, though, on the, the sort of pandemic of it all, like watching this show, it's one of the first things I've seen where it really digested COVID in a way that didn't mm. feel like gimmicky or like over referential. Um, mm, how did you find that? I feel like that must have been so hard. Like you see mm -hmm. the masks in the scene when they're um, up in uh, sort of the lodge with the family and that felt real and it didn't feel like, look, it's a mirror of you, the viewer. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So how did you find that line? You know, it sounds crazy. We had the whole story broken before COVID. We shot the pilot before COVID. We had the whole story broken. And I think we probably had the first two, I think we had scripts two and three, and we were in the middle of four when COVID happened. And so believe it or not, all the stuff in two and three that was pandemic related was already in those scripts. So like the family, for example, with the masks, that was already in there. And weirdly it was because when we shot the pilot it was it was what was it july 2019 we were shooting at the hospital we were shooting all the stuff with dr singh and we had a, a bunch of medical consultants and as we were shooting these big crowd scenes there was all these like conversations on set about who would be wearing a mask and who wouldn't and i remember at the time sort of being frustrated by it because it was like i get it that everyone would be wearing a mask at the same time i also want to see the actor's face you know i don't want to be just hiding everybody you know, so we have to sort of find a way to do that. And so we were constantly in the sort of battle of like, how do you film people who are all in the same place wearing masks? And, and so the mask thing stuck with me. In fact, in the very first cuts of the pilot, believe it or not, it's crazy now, 
the show opened, the first image was the one of Dr. Singh leaning against the candy bar machine and he's got his mask on and it holds on him for a couple seconds and then he takes his mask off and takes a deep breath. And that used to be the opening shot of the pilot, which is crazy now to think that we ended up reworking a lot of that stuff. But anyway, that stuff had sort of stuck with me. So when we came to some of the pandemic stuff, you know, the question of masks kind of popped up because of those kind of conversations on set. And thankfully, we listened to those medical advisors enough the first time around that um, it, it continued through. So you're saying trust science at the end of the day? Hey, trust, yes, exactly. It feels feels like a rogue idea, but yes, trust science. Um, it's crazy, you know, there was a moment in, I told this story before, there was a moment in episode three where Michael Perry, who wrote episode three, I remember he wrote that, that that Nancy character had a bedazzled mask. And I think one of my notes to him was like, I think we might be pushing it a little hard, you know, like, I don't know that we're going to, I don't know that we're going to ever get to that point. And then probably weeks later that we did. So we actually didn't change all that much really which sounds crazy but we but it was stuff that was already kind of baked in and then you know it was a lot of stuff on art department like some of the stuff with the uh rolls of toilet paper and stuff like that where it just felt like we were in the middle of it but you're able to look at some of the sort of absurdities of it i guess and and sort of all recognize it yeah the hand sanitizer on the train i, I was like that had to be that's a post-covid choice <laughs> yeah. right there Yes. Yeah. All right. Before we wrap up here, something that we've been doing on the podcast every week is beyond talking about Sweet Tooth the series, which is excellent. We've also been reviewing a piece of candy. And we got to the point on our season finale podcast where we started debating about the best piece of candy and we were going to award the best piece of candy that we reviewed over the course of season one, the coveted syrup cup. Based on coveted. Gus's deeply syrup, coveted, deeply yeah. coveted. Everybody's been pushing for this, but we reached sort of an impasse. Everybody chose their own candy, so we're hoping, Jim, as an impartial judge, we could oh, wow. offer up these three pieces of candy to you, and you could choose who the winner of the season one syrup cup would be. Would that be all right? Oh, okay, yeah, I'll be as impartial as I can. Yeah, please. All right, here we go. So here's the choices. They're not really deep cuts, to be honest with you, but <laughs> Justin's pick was Snickers. Pete's okay. pick, the candy bars. Yeah, Pete's pick was Milky Way, and okay. my pick was Ooh. Sour Gummy Worms, which I'll mention not to lead oh. it too much. Now that's that's yeah. fucked up. Yeah, yeah, dude, no, no, don't no, no, no. It was from the episode. I'm say it here. That's pandering. Pandering. <laughs> Uh, but between those three, Snickers, Milky Way, and Sour Gummy Worms, according to you, Jim Bickle, the co-showrunner yeah. of Sweet Tooth, which wins the series? A cup? man deeply familiar with having a Sweet Tooth. <laughs> uh, that's tough. Honestly, that's tough. All three are, you know, Milky Way and Snickers are kind of, they, they occupy a very similar lane, and then, uh, and then Sour Gummies comes out of nowhere. I'm... I'm going to go with Snickers. Of all those three, yeah. those three are in front of me. Wow. Which, which one would I grab? <laughs> of course. It's the king of all candy. There's Don't no say that. I said it from true. episode one. I said it from episode uh, one. It's the peanut. It's the chocolate. It's the, uh, yeah. It's got it all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's true. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for breaking wow. that impasse. I think we could move on and hopefully tackle. I mean, I'm going to wallow. I'm going to wallow in this for a while, but sure, we can move on. <laughs> Which one would I rather shoot? It would be the sour gummies. 
they're right. a bit more uh they're a bit visually. more visually interesting yeah. yeah yes exactly uh jim thank you so much for coming on thanks for the amazing show thanks. uh congratulations thanks. thank you so much absolutely jim. fantastic we really appreciate take it, it easy relax stop color yes. correcting <laughs> we'll, try. <laughs> we'll try if you'd like to support our podcast patreon.com slash comic book club also we do a live show every tuesday night at 7 p.m to crowdcast and the youtube Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about Sweet Tooth. iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app of your choice to subscribe and follow the show. ComicBookClubLive.com for this podcast and more. Until next time, we'll sweet you later. Later.